0: Okay, Ben actually forgot the way that conversation went. It went something like this. Hey, would you be cool just jumping into our series? Yeah, sure, that's great. Send me whatever it is. Two weeks later, I get a fill-in that we're talking about death. (laughs) And I said, okay, next time I will ask clarifying questions before I just say (laughs) yes. Um, But here I am, and we're going to talk about how Jesus behaves at a funeral. So um, anyway, um, I actually, the interesting thing is when I've been at a place, um, it's really fun to come back to a place because when the Holy Spirit does a work and even if you weren't here any of those times that I spoke, his presence in this building uh, is in my heart. And so when I sit down to write, I can see the space, and I can feel the space. And it it very much feels uh, like home, because it's the Holy Spirit, and that's what He does. And so it's really fun to come back to places again and again, because it feels like an extension of my people um, where I am. And so uh, I will let you know that you're welcome. It is colder in Ohio, even though it did not feel like that this morning. We are going to Florida, and I'm not, like, when you travel from Ohio to Florida, you expect it to feel better. Um, So it is not going to be that way. So I don't know what the Lord is doing with my family this week. I thought we were going to be in shorts, but apparently we're buying some sweatshirts when we get to seaside. Um, So we're gonna do that. Now, talking about death, here's what happened. I want to tell you a story really quick because it's really fun and then I want to jump into the story of Lazarus and and Jesus and I I want to give you the points that I feel like the Lord highlighted in my mind as I pressed into this and then I actually feel like I do have a little bit of a word that is applicable to you. So I am going to talk about like physical death and Jesus at a funeral but the reality is just like everything that Jesus does he is super multi-dimensional like His Word has so many dimensions, and it meets us all in our individual reality, and most of the time when there is uh, a lesson for physical death, there's also a lesson for spiritual death. So I would just invite you that while we're digging into this together, would you not only think about the actual physical death, like we are here and and we will die and we will move on and like but would you also think about the spiritual death that Jesus has invited because there is there is this spiritual dying that we get to do in him that actually leads to the resurrection life in him and I feel like that's super important for you guys today. So at uh, this time last year actually I buried we buried my grandma. Now my grandma is my person so Just, uh, I'm gonna tell you just a few things, but I don't want to get super emotional. I don't know that I've lost someone yet that a year later I still can cry and I still can think for a moment and just want her back so deeply. Uh, She was in great health, but she had leukemia. Grandma never missed any of my games growing up. She never missed any of my kids' games, my my oldest daughter's dance recitals, my youngest daughter's soccer games. She had her own church, which was the church that we grew up in, Uh, but if I was speaking at Anthem, uh, which is my church, which is about 20 minutes down the road from them, um, she was figuring out how to get there, and and Alton used to, um, Alton is my co-pastor that we pastored together, and so she does not come when Alton speaks, and uh, one time she did come when Alton was speaking, and then she didn't come again until I was speaking again, and right before, uh, as she was getting ready to die, she was coming to our church all the time, because it was really about being together, and I couldn't, I wasn't available to go to her space, and so uh, right before she died, she did tell me, like, she pat me on my leg, she's like, he's getting a lot better. (laughs) So it's kind of a joke that we have, that my grandma prefers me, and doesn't really like Alton speaking, but he gave her peace before she passed because he's starting to get better. So she had hope. Um, He wasn't as good as me, but she had hope. So she's uh, with leukemia. And towards the end there, my mom and I are splitting, taking her to the hospital and doing the the transfusions. And uh, that last time she was in the hospital, I remember the, the um, doctor coming in and being like, you're doing these too many times, like we can't keep up, her body cannot continue to need to have her blood replaced at this pace, we're going to send you home. And so I'm doing the math in my head of like, well, we're here three times a week, If she doesn't come in for one week, like, are you telling me that we're going home and like in the next seven to 10 days, my grandma's going to die? And like, yes, that's what's going to happen. And I'm like, okay. So I'm like preparing myself and my mom and my grandpa. And, you know, it's really strange to be, uh, I'm mourning for losing my grandma, but I'm also mourning as I watch my mom lose her mom, which is really a strange place to be. And I remember coming home and grandma was super, I mean, she looked the best ever right? That day we come home. So it doesn't even look like anything is wrong. And I know in my mind, like over the next couple days, she's going to go from being active and involved and talking and engaged to not even being able to communicate and being in bed. And so trying to sort of like prepare myself for that and keep that in mind. And we were home, not even for about, I don't know, 10, 12 hours. I didn't leave her house. I told everybody in my life, like, Basically, nothing is more important than this. Like, Alton was like, what can we do? And I was like, you can just know that I will be nowhere except for here. And like, none of this matters right now. And they did. They took everything off of our plates as a family and figured out how to support us. And so I was with my grandma, and she begins to write something down on a piece of paper. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, I'm having a party. Uh, And I'm like, you're having a party? She's like, yeah. She's like, on Friday. On Friday. I'm going to invite all of my friends, and I'm having this party, and I'm thinking, well, Grandma's probably not going to make it to Friday, and if she is alive on Friday, there's no way we're having a party, and I'm, but I'm like, okay, all right, let's, let's make the list, whatever you want to do. So we start to make this list, and she tells me who's invited, and, and then like I hear the phone ring, and it's one of her best friends, and she's on the phone with one of her best friends, and she's telling her friend about this party, and like she's legit is having a party. Like... <laughs> This person, and I get on the phone afterwards, and she's like, wait, you're, you can't have a party at your grandma's house on Friday. I'm like, I am aware of this. But my friend Robin was in charge of making cookies. My mom was in charge. of Everybody was getting jobs because grandma was having a party, and every person that came to visit, she told them. It took about 12 hours for me to realize what the Holy Spirit was doing, and then I just was like, oh, this is... This is what's happening. Like I remember t- calling my best friend and being like I think my grandma's going to die on Friday. She said the party's at 2. Like I just need to be prepared that like this is what the Lord's doing and and I got to have this like supernatural experience with my like in her soul, she was anticipating a party. And like she was in in her awareness, it was happening in her home. And in our awareness, we knew that it was happening when the Lord took her home. And it was just like, it was the kindness of God for him to let us have that experience with her, because he didn't have to do that. Uh, It was his kindness for us to send her off well to this party uh, and to sort of prepare our hearts, but to know like she was anticipating death as a party Uh, and like she was scared because she didn't want to leave us like I'm she's my I'm her bestie like right she didn't want to leave us and like she had was so conflicting but as every time she planned for this party like some people didn't make the list I have not communicated that to them but like (laughs) she had a reason Uh, and like she was so feisty in this party planning and then I remember on Friday like We were so torn because my daughter Ella had a dance competition in Lexington, and I knew like I cannot leave until the last minute because like my grandma is going to pass on Friday and like, but yet my daughter's going to dance on Saturday morning at 7 a.m. And like there was these two things happening side by side. And I remember just being present and knowing like, and and then the peace of God just kind of coming over our family as we sat in that room together, my mom and my brother, my dad, my husband. and Uh, my kids, and just knowing, like, okay, and the next, it's happening. Like, sure enough, I thought two o'clock, well, knowing my grandma, you know, like, it wasn't two o'clock, because nobody goes to the party on time, right? But about five o'clock on Friday evening, grandma passed away, and she got to have that party that she was talking about, and it made me think of, um, I'm sorry, what is your young adult generation lady's name? Meredith, when she said that joy and that grief, that's exactly what we experienced. Like, I wanted her with me. I still actually would prefer that she be here in the front row every time I speak, that she call me and nag me over not being at her house for the past four days. You know, I haven't seen you. She did that. It was so annoying all the time. I'm like, Grandma, you know what makes me come faster when you don't guilt and shame me on my way? like but I would still prefer her to be here in that space, and yet at the same time, I'm so full of joy because she is not having blood transfusions in heaven, and she does not have a worry, and she does not have health concerns, and she is at home, and and I have so much joy knowing if she was given the option, she wouldn't come back. Like, she would not choose to come back with her favorite people. She would choose to be right where she is, and so when we think about death, Part of the reason why I think it's so difficult is because we weren't created to have this experience, right? We were created in light of eternity. And so it it actually, my, my being was not created for my grandma to not be in this moment with me. My being was created for eternity. And so there's this tension that's created when we deal with death because we're actually dealing with something we weren't created to deal with. And so the expectation that we could control this or we even know how to do this well, like I'm an Enneagram 3, so oftentimes I'm like, I'm just going to do this well. And the Lord's always like, why don't you just do this? I'll deal with the well part. Like the, the thought that we could do this well when it actually, it would go against who I am to deal with death well. Like that's an expectation that the Lord didn't create us to do this. And here we are doing this. And so if you look at the story of Lazarus, I really think that we can see a few things. And Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to summarize it. And uh, if you want to go read that, it is a whole chapter. And I would love for you to read it. But here's what's going on. So Jesus and his disciples, they're away. They're doing ministry. Uh, You need to know that Mary, this is the same Mary who came in and poured her perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These are dear friends of Jesus'. And so what's happening is Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha are taking care of him. They send word to Jesus. Hey, listen, our brother is sick. We need you to come. Jesus uh, makes a comment to the disciples as he's getting this message of like, listen, this is what he says. This sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory that that God's son may be glorified through this. Now, Jesus loved them more than anything. So Jesus tarries in his response to them. And eventually he begins to head back and he first encounters Martha. And here's what it says. Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Die, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God. Then Martha leaves to go back to get Mary. So now Mary and Martha are coming back to Jesus. And it says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come alongside her who were also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied, and Jesus wept. Then Jesus said, See how he loved him. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him, talking about Jesus. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time, there there is a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had finished saying this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So when I look into this, I really saw three things that got my attention almost right off the bat. And the first one was this. It's okay to wrestle with the lack of control that we have. I'm I'm actually... Reading this book, it's called The Cost of Control. And I, Sharon Hood Miller is, is who's is by if you're interested. I would suggest if you're a parent in this room, you should buy this book. I thought that I didn't need control until I read this book. And I was like, oh, I'm just doing it in ways that I don't recognize. Uh, and the interesting thing is, I'll tell you really quick what the book is about. Interesting thing is uh, the cost of control is this. We have c- control, specifically as parents, we have control over our kids in a way that has never existed before right? My daughter, my oldest daughter is a senior, and her and four friends followed a different family down to Florida in a separate car yesterday. At any point in time, I could see how fast they were going, where they were going, when they were stopping, what time they stopped, if they ran the stop sign, what they ordered from Starbucks. Like, I had the ability to be present with them in every way, but actually my physical presence. And so because because of this illusion of control that we have, what we're seeing, what experts are seeing is that Things like um, bad behavior, risky behavior, uh, binge drinking, partying, excessive speeding, all of those trends in young adults today are actually going down. The problem that, that people are seeing, that experts are seeing, is that while these trends are going down, the trends of anxiety, crippling anxiety, are going up. And so what, what the author is trying to help you see as the reader is there is a cost to the illusion of control that we are paying. I do have a level of control, but it's an illusion because there's a, I'm paying a cost for this level of control. I'm trading one thing for another. And so the same is true in regards to our life, right? And our death. There is this illusion, like it, it's the whole thing, like control gives me a little bit of power and I think, well, I don't really care about power. But the reality, the type of power that this gives me is uh, the power to have security, right? I don't really wanna thwart my power. That's not really who I am. So I think I'm not a very controlling person, but I do find peace in feeling secure in knowing what happens and knowing that my kids are okay and knowing that everything is gonna be fine. Like I do find a level of security. So here, herein is how I use my power. And so I take control and I, I'm exerting a power to find stability in something that actually can't do what it promises to do. And so I have this illusion of something. In Jennifer Duke Lee, in her book, It's All Under Control, she defines control as the belief that I'm safe and more secure if I'm in charge. It's actually, control is actually even in Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, He would actually place that uh, security, that level of security comes right in the very first level. Like these are the basic needs of a human being. We've got to be fed, we've got to have water, we've got to have a place to sleep. It's all of our security. We uh, We do have inside of us with the need to be significant and the need to belong, but we can only focus on those two things after our basic needs are met. Until our basic needs are met, we live in chaos and we can't actually do anything with this. So it is innate in us that we need security to thrive, to live, to survive. And so some of us, myself included, some of us satisfy the urge for control and we we so need to satisfy this urge that we find ways to live into the illusion of it that feels more stable than our surrender to it. Right? So if I can hold on to it, and I don't have to surrender to it, then these coping mechanisms actually present this false stability inside of me that my surrender seemingly takes away. The problem is, like, if you go back to even the garden, right, we can even see this with Adam and Eve. So they didn't have control over the garden, but they had freedom in the garden, right? God gave them a job. He gave them all their needs. So all their basic needs were met. He gave them one stipulation. There was one thing that they had control over, and that was whether or not they submitted and surrendered to his control. And we all know how that played out, right? They still, they stepped outside of that because the urge for control, the the belief, the illusion that I will be better if I'm in charge of this. They were ployed by the enemy, right, to step into that. It's the same thing he does to us every single day, right? This, your kids will be safe if you track them on Life 360, right? If they can reach you 24 hours a day, seven days a week via instant messenger, whatever it is, everything will be safe. If, if you commit to these things and there's this illusion, like you can pay your bills, you have a house to live in, you have food on your table, you have people. There's this illusion that if I have all of these external things, then internally my life will be at peace. The problem with this is we go looking for peace outside of us when peace actually exists in the person of Jesus that lives inside of us. And there's nothing outside of us that can do for us what Jesus has already done for us on the inside of us. And so we try to find security and significance and belonging in things outside of the context of a relationship with Jesus. It's the same thing that Adam and Eve did. If I just do this, then I will have that. The problem is they gave up The significance, the security, and the belonging that they were created to live in and the freedom. And they then stepped into a false representation of it, and they actually put themselves in bondage to it. And now they had to spend their lives figuring out how to turn this into this. And I don't know if you've spent any time trying to turn chaos into peace, but we actually aren't really good at that like it's not something that is in our wheelhouse. And so you may be able to temporarily manage it. Like right I can I sometimes work in a program that goes into high schools, middle schools and every once in a while we go into fifth grade classrooms and I think that I'm I'm good and then I step into with a, a gym full of fifth graders and I'm like this is terrible. <laughs> I'm not good. I can't do this. Like I, like, I'm, I'm speaking, and those middle schoolers they are just following everything that we're saying right on all the things. And then I speak to a fifth grader, and they're just like talking and they're just running around. It's, can I go to the bathroom? Your birthday's on Christmas? I mean, they are, they're just like all over the place. And it's like bringing peace to a gym full of fifth graders is a gifting right? You sometimes may buy into the illusion that you are good at managing, at controlling your lives and the lives of those that you love. But the real truth is it will just be a matter of time until chaos comes and you cannot hold it all together. The Lord talks to me about this on a daily basis because he, I like to hold things together. I like to hold people together. The temptation of a pastor is to hold people together, And he has to remind me, when you hold them together, they don't learn that I hold all things together. So I actually need you to stop doing this because you are in my way. And I'm like, yes, Lord, I I remember that, but I so easily forget that because it's hard to watch the people you love fall apart, right? It's hard to fall apart yourselves. And when I let go, what happens often is, that we fall apart because we have been figuring out how to stabilize ourselves. We will never find peace in a better circumstance, in a better situation. We will only ever find peace in a person. It has to be Jesus. He is the only one capable. It's the story of the gospel, right? No matter what happened all throughout the Old Testament, nothing worked. No matter what they did to bring stability back to the chaos, they could not do it. Jesus had to come. Death had to happen. There had to be a surrender. There had to be open-handedness, right? There had to be this letting go so that then we actually could move from a place of stability and of security. We find peace in a person. And so Mary and Martha, when I look at the story, I actually think that they handled this fairly decent, right? They knew they couldn't rescue their brother. They called out to Jesus. Now they did guilt and shame him when he showed up. But in, in the midst of mourning, I'm not going to hold them accountable for that, right? I don't know what I would do. I probably would do the same thing. Because it was true. They knew the answer to their their lack of security was Jesus. They knew to send for him. They knew that their brother He had no hope with just them at the wheel. He needed Jesus here. They knew all of those things. What they didn't know was that Jesus isn't in a hurry, which is the second thing, right? God's not in a hurry. No one knows the hour, only the Father. And here's what we have to keep in mind. God's not in a hurry when it comes to our lives or when it comes to our death, but like, he's not constricted to time in the same way that we are constricted to time. And so Mary and Martha call out for Jesus and you know what they're thinking, right? They're thinking, well, he'll come right away as soon as he hears, but that's not what he does. Like scripture says that he tarries. And like, we know that Jesus only ever did what he saw the father do. And so if Jesus like tarried in his going to them, it's because that's what the father was doing. And so he knew, like when you know that paradigm, you can hold on to the reality that he knew that God was doing something that involved letting Lazarus die so that he could be made known. And so Jesus could surrender and he could walk in that without hurrying. And so I don't know if you've noticed this, but God rarely does things in the timeline that I want him to do them. So here's what's happened in my life. Really quick in the past two years, we got this idea during COVID and we happened upon this opportunity to buy 37 acres. So Dave and I bought 37 acres. We convinced our three best friends and their families to all sell their houses and move in with their parents so that we could uh, plot this into four four lots and build houses together, you know, all the things, right? So all of us are living two years later with our parents. Um, And here's what's happened. Uh, I would have told you that... I would be getting ready to move into a new house, it's my daughter's senior year, and we're going to have the graduation party at this new house on our 37 acres with our best friends living in community around us and um, that, I don't even have, a, there, nothing's been dug. So this is a really great. Uh, I would have been moving in. I, I have just, in case anybody's worried, I did pay to secure a place for a graduation party. I finally told Dave, this is really what's producing anxiety in me and I'm having a hard time surrendering to God's timeline, which is clearly not my timeline, but Ella's graduating and I don't have a place and the only place that she's asked me not to do this is the church. Not that I've abused my uh, access to that building any with my kids and their birthday parties and all their things, right? Because uh, that's what we do. So I had to go rent a place. Dave's like, just rent the place, whatever, just rent the place. So we have a place for that just in case you're concerned. Uh, so uh, here's what's happened. As God has tarried, and here's why I think that the Lord is withholding, and he, or is not withholding, but is like holding back something from us, is because, uh, number one, I, I've prayed for so much favor so much favor. And the Lord always gives me what I want. Like he really does. It just doesn't always come in the way that I want it. And so I've prayed for so much favor. So I know that he has this for us. I know this is what he's called us to do. Um, but, and every time like there's been a prolonging and moving forward, it's because there is a, there's either a blessing or a benefit or there's a character development. And so one of them is really great. The other one is terrible. Like we were trying to explain to Ben in the car and Addie, who's my 15-year-old, she's like, "I I said something that I said. So I said, you know how many times I have, so we have three Enneagram eights are the men and one's an Enneagram seven with a wing eight. So if you know anything about the Enneagram, the eights are the people that are just mean. I'm just kidding. Dave's actually an eight. They're super helpful, but like they just say it like it is. And sometimes it comes out like, wait, do you hate me? or do you wanna be my neighbor? And so the amount of conversations that I've had with the four boys that sound like this, it's not really what you're saying, it's how you're saying it. So you're saying this, and I hear what you're saying, but here's how your friends are receiving that. And so I was saying that to Ben last night, and Addie's like, I've heard my mom say that a 100 times. She's not lying. Like they'll be on a phone call, all four of them, and I'm always in the room or in the car or somewhere, and and they're just and straight to the point, and like I'm a three, so I have lots of feelings and lots of, and I'm just like, okay, this is this is how they talk to each other, but then somebody gets their feelings hurt, and then I get to step in, like, okay, would you like to rephrase that? What you just said, could, I could help you make that sound a lot nicer. Uh, the other day, Andrew, one of the guys, he actually texted me, and he sent me this thing that he was going to send to somebody. He was like, I know this sounds mean. Could you just make it sound better? (laughs) Like, sure. I think this is okay. I'm rewriting people's text messages. I'm not really sure. So I know that the Lord is doing something. I wish that he would do it faster, but I'm also surrendered to the fact that good things Uh, and hard things are happening that are going to build a foundation that enables us to be stronger and more fruitful. Like what's happened is this, in just a few, the past couple of weeks, 37 acres has now turned into 41 acres. Four lots has now turned into eight lots. We have the potential to move my in-laws, my um, sister-in-law, my brother-in-law are going to buy one of those lots and build with us Uh, some dear friends of mine, their young son and his new wife are going to buy an existing house that we have on one of those lots. We've been able to turn sewer or septic into sewer, which um, apparently that's a really good thing. And you can like flush things down the toilet when you have sewer. And so that was a big priority. That was a big win. And we actually can like use parts of our land instead of like Um, sending our bodily fluids out to parts of our land, I guess. All these things are really good. I don't know much about them, but supposedly this is all really good stuff. So really good stuff is happening that would not have happened. If I had a house at this point in time, we wouldn't be adding people to this space, this community thing that we're doing. And so here's what I know. God's just not in a hurry because there's so much more to it than what we see. Like, Jesus knew there was so much more to it than what the people experiencing it were seeing, and if they could just trust that when he got there was when he needed to get there. He wasn't panicked. He wasn't frantic. He wasn't chaotic. He wasn't unresponsive. He wasn't being rude. He wasn't unkind or uncaring. He was exactly what he needed to be, and when he got there, this is super important, when he got there, he entered into their grief, right, right? This is the last point, if I can find it. When he got there, he hurt with them. So this, is, this might be my favorite part because I feel like I learned the most in this space right here because this is interesting to me. He knew the whole time that Lazarus wasn't going to stay dead. Like, he knew that resurrected life was about to come. And yet when he saw his friends... He was overcome with emotion. So like God, God meets this in reality, right? In that moment, he chose to forsake what he knew was coming and to be painfully present with the people that he loved. Like it would have been so here's my temptation. As a pastor, if I knew I was about to raise somebody from the dead, I'd be like, "Stop crying. Get up. Let's do this. Let's have a party. Why are we crying? But what I see in in this space is something so important. Like there is actually something so holy and healthy in mourning that I don't know that we understand because we we so anticipate it being over. We can't wait for the good to come that we really struggle with the mourning part, right? Mary and Martha were really struggling. And Jesus knew that this, it wasn't necessary, right? I don't know if you've ever, like as a parent of teenagers, there are moments where I could jump in and rescue, but where in wisdom, I know the healthier thing is to let my kids struggle. Because in that struggle, something is formed that if I rescue, it would go unformed. And eventually it has to be formed. And God, he's a really good dad. He's a really good dad. And when he looks out over me and my friends and he sees us doing this really good thing, right? Like he's called us to live in this level of community. But when he sees us struggle to be authentic and vulnerable with our finances, to be held to a higher level of accountability, to be honest with our offenses, to learn to apologize and forgive one another in a a way that you only do inside of one home right? As he sees us struggle, and he doesn't just answer our our prayers by giving us everything that we've asked for in the minute that we've asked for them. He sees what I don't see. He sees the friction that's forming something that's foundational. Because I've not asked the Lord for a little fruit. I've asked him for abundant fruit, and he wants to give me that. But he's not going to give me something that's going to kill me. And the weight of abundant fruit is heavy, and it requires deep roots. And depth takes time, and it takes tears, and it takes breaking, and it takes digging, and it takes all of the things that we don't like. And Jesus, in that moment, he was so overcome. Nobody likes to see their friends hurting, right? No parent likes to see their daughters cry, right? My 17-year-old just had her first heartbreak. I'll just kill me some 17-year-old boys. There's nothing worse, I mean, not than a 17-year-old boy, but than a 17-year-old boy breaking my daughter's heart. I'll flatten every single one of your tires. What were you thinking? <laughs> In the name of Jesus, I will take all the air out. And I wanted to rescue her, and I wanted, to, I wanted to tell her how none of this matters, right? You're going, you've got a bright future, the Lord is good, but, but like the Lord's just like, we just be quiet. Just sit with her. Just let her think this is the end of the world because, in her reality, that's what it feels like. But it was so, it hurts so bad to enter into that space. But there's something that he has to do that I will get in the way of if I rescue and put my band aid over it every single time. And Jesus understood that. Like, here's something that I see is. In the midst of grief, I think I noticed two things. I hear this from my friends, I hear this from people in my church. They say something along the lines of this, but I don't want to burden you with what's burdening me. And I feel like this is something that I've learned. When we don't share, when we don't lament, lament is actually meant to be this community thing, right? Mary and Martha were lamenting in community. It says that. It says the mourners saw Jesus wept and they understood how much he loved them. So this wasn't Mary and Martha. This was the whole community crying, gathering for days, right? We know this because the story of Job, right? Like His friends came for seven days. They sat with him and cried. There's numerous times throughout scripture where we see people gather in mourning together. And so I I couldn't understand why it bothers me when people say, I don't want to burden you. And I finally understood it when one of my friends sort of kept what was sad from them, what was destroying their life, sort of kept it and tried to manage it uh, because they didn't want to burden me with it. Like, I understand this. The actual burden was not being invited into the space that I was created to be in with them. What burdened me wasn't helping them carry their grief. It wasn't being sad with them and mourning with them. What actually got heavy was the distance that, it, that began to exist between my friend's broken heart and my understanding of what was happening. And so I felt burdened and I didn't understand, but then I also felt resentment And when the resentment came in, I realized because you're doing this alone and I was created to do it with you. And so there's something that happened where we have gone from this community uh, way of living, way of dying to where we have made it this individualistic thing. All of a sudden my burdens are mine to carry and not yours to help me with. And there's a couple of problems in that. Number one, it's my decision to decide whether I pick up your burden, not yours. And it's my job, my spiritual formation is dependent upon me recognizing when I'm carrying something in my strength or when I'm carrying something in the strength of the Lord. And so if you make that decision for me, I actually don't get the opportunity to spiritually form and mature in a way that helps me understand what the difference is between me carrying your burden or the Lord in me helping me carry your burden. And I've got to figure all that stuff out. I don't need you to rescue me from it. But we do this as community. We just rescue one another from their own spiritual formation, which actually isn't kind, it's cruel. I'm going to grow as I learn to mourn and lament with you, not as you keep me safe from your emotions. And Jesus shows us that. The other thing that I I see in this is as supporters of those who grieve, we don't have time to stay present with them. I think time is a really big deal Uh, in in our spiritual formation. We don't have time to be present with people who are hurting. Do you know what we do? We send them a Grubhub gift card. No offense, there's nothing wrong with a Grubhub gift card. Nobody wants to cook when they're lamenting. But nobody really wants to eat either. Right, we wanna be with our people. We wanna sit on the floor, we wanna tell stories, we wanna weep, we wanna be loved. And there's a problem When my first reaction to somebody hurting is to send them a gift card, right? Because the presence of people, the real-life representation of Jesus in people sitting around our tables is actually what we need. Follow it up with a gift card, follow it up with a meal plan. Do all of those things, because all of those things need to be taken care of, but that does not replace what it means to sit and be present with people in what hurts. Lamenting is meant to be communal. It's just like what Ben was saying. When we are together, there's something vertical that happens. When we worship together, there's also something vertical that happens when we lament and when we mourn and when we live and when we die together as a community. There's a way that you get to respond to other people's pain that actually brings you into their pain, but it's going to cost you your time, not your money. They need your time and they need your face. And so Jesus shows us how important this is because, listen, heartbreak is unpreventable. The people in your life are going to hurt. But in 1 Corinthians, it says this, death has been swallowed up in victory, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I feel like today. I think the band's going to come up um, so we can go into ministry time. Uh, I think it's okay to wrestle with living and dying. I just want to make sure that our wrestling is to surrender and not to secure our own selves right? Like there's a difference, right? I can wrestle with God and I can wrestle against God. I want to make sure that I'm wrestling with him to, to overcome my flesh and not wrestling against him to build up my flesh. Does that make sense? And so when I, when I thought about this and when I thought about you and when I could picture this room, the thing that came to my mind is this. I feel like there's a, this is a multi-layer For you, I feel like there's another layer of this, and the reality is, for the past three or four years, the Lord's really been working on something. If you ever want to um, question everything about your life, go plant a church Um, because it's really interesting to like give the sermon and then go clean the toilets. um, There's just a really some character development, really. Um, I think actually, last week, I'll quote myself. I think we need to hire um, Mary maids before Easter because there's a level of cleanliness that has to happen in this building that I'm not, I am not—I don't even know what to do. I'll personally pay for it. Um, but there's just this thing, right? And so the Lord has been teaching me. And one of the things that I feel like he's teaching me is this, he said this to me a couple of years ago, I'm, I don't doubt that you'll live for me. Like I, I actually know that you'll live for me. I know that you've decided that you'll climb any mountain for me. You'll do anything I've asked you to do. What I'm asking is, are you willing to die for me? And I remember like this has been a couple of years of me sort of wrestling with Jesus on this because here's the thing, I don't think it's wrong to live for Jesus, right? And and in my 20s and in my 30s, like I, I needed to know that Jesus was worth living for. I needed to know that I could give him my life and that he would do more than I ever asked or imagined possible. I needed to know that I would give him my gift and he would blow my mind with what he would do and where he would take me. I needed to know all of those things. Why did I need to know all of those things? Because I needed to know that if he really is worth living for, then he also is worth dying for. Because the second part of my life, I've realized that it's not living that I want to do for Jesus, but it's dying. Because I lived for him, right? I lived for him. I experienced the mountaintop. I got to have whatever. And now I'm still looking for more of that. And so I want, like, will you actually die for me? Will you let go? Will you surrender? Will you step off the stage? Will you, will you? It's all of the things that would be spiritually would look like death to my needs, to my wants, to my desires. And why? Because. After I die for him, what he resurrects is him. And what I really want and what I'm chasing is Jesus Christ resurrected in and through me. But the only way that that comes is on the other side of the death of me. And so I can live for him, but what living for him does is it limits the resurrected Jesus that comes out of me. And so I, I want... I want you to hear me. It's not wrong to live for Jesus, but there's a deeper invitation of living a life that looks like dying for him. It looks like letting go. It doesn't look like building. It looks like surrendering. It looks like, it looks like death, and here's the thing. It feels like death, right? And so here's what I want to do. I want to just sort of issue this and speak this over you because I do feel like there is, there's a question that the Lord has for You may be somebody in this room, but the question is this, will you die for me? Like I I hear him, I hear, he's such a proud dad and he's even behind you and he's behind this church and he's like, you have done such a great work. You are making such a difference. Your lives lived for me, you're doing things. Your lives, when your lives die for me, I do things. And I don't know how the two ever compare, right? I, I'm, when I know that the Lord can be here and can do something, that's what I always want. I would never be like, no, you take a seat. I got this. I got this, Lord. I'm really good. I can, I can deliver this. If Jesus physical was like, I'm going to talk, none of us in this room would be like, no, I got this. But every day in our lives, we do this in some way, shape, or form. When we refuse to surrender, but we, I got this. I, even in the name of Jesus, I've got this. And He's just saying, "Could you just let me have it?" And like I hold all things together. So could you just open your hands to me and let me do this? So here's what I want you to do. As as they go into this song, there are there's communion around the room, and there's just a an invitation for response I know the typical um, spiel about communion right like is legitimate I'm not trying to make it not legitimate Uh, Jesus died for you right Jesus died for you and that is what you do in remembrance of the sacrifice of that death but as you take that today can I just ask you to think about like think just a little bit deeper Jesus died for you He's not in a hurry, but he's asked, will you die for him? Right? You don't have to give him an answer today. Like, if you have professed a faith in in Jesus, then you understand you never really stop dying. Right? Paul says, I die daily. Like, it's, it's a daily surrender. If you have never professed a faith in Jesus, like, I really can't pass up the opportunity to say, Like there is, there is this thing between life and death and you actually were created for eternity and Jesus died for you so that you could live for him. And that means live forever, right? That means your body is going to die, but your spirit gets to live forever in eternity. Like that's a thing that you were created for. And the scripture says that if we confess and believe that this actually happened, that we get to experience that. And so uh, you don't have to take communion, but if you want to take communion today as a part of that, and if that is you and you have never professed a faith in Jesus, you've never said, I believe that that happened, uh, I would just encourage you to step out today. And if you want to do that, I know Ben would be available. There's probably other people available. I'm available. We would love to talk to you, to pray with you. Um, But for the rest of you, those of you that are walking in step with the Spirit, my challenge to you is don't leave this room alive. Right? Because greater is he that lives in you than he that lives in the world. And there's someone that died to live in you that is dying to live through you, right? And you have the power to bring that to fruition today. So let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your sacrifice. And I ask right now that you would give us the power to surrender, that you would give us the strength and the courage to let go of whatever it is we're clinging to, And that would you you would let us to experience, you would lead us to experience the one who holds all things together. If that involves me falling apart, then take me apart. We love you, Lord, and we need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.